My name is Terry O'Reilly. Fort Detroit, Monday, August 16th, 1812. You won't get an appointment to chat with William Hull on this day. The general has a lot on his mind. Just weeks earlier, he had crossed the Detroit River to Canada and issued a proclamation. Inhabitants of Canada, the army under my command has invaded your country. The standard of the Union now waves over the territory of Canada. I come to find enemies, not to make them. I come to protect, not to injure you. Little did he know he was about to get caught with, well, his backfield in motion. A British and native force had arrived. Though Hull and his American troops, secure behind the walls of Fort Detroit, had them outnumbered two to one. Their objective was to capture the fort and force Hull surrender. What they lacked was a strategy, and great strategy begins with great leadership. Enter Brigadier General Isaac Brock and the great Shawnee Chief Tecumseh, who concocted an audacious plan. They would trick Hull into believing he was outnumbered. Militarily speaking, a strategy is achieved through tactics, and it's through their tactics that the fun began. First, Tecumseh had many of his 600 warriors walk single file through a clearing within view of the fort. Then, he'd have them double back and pass through the clearing again and again. Meanwhile, Brock ordered his men to light many more cook fires than they needed and to move noisily to various positions in the woods to embellish their numbers. He had untrained militia borrow old scarlet tunics so the Americans would believe he had a much larger force of regular soldiers. Supply lines were cut. Then, they spoon-fed General Hull some of his own medicine. Weeks earlier, Hull's proclamation warned Canadians that, should they support the British, you will be considered and treated as enemies, and the horrors and calamities of war will stalk you. Brock improved on the tactic, sending the general a note which read, The force at my disposal authorizes me to require of you the immediate surrender of Fort Detroit. It is far from my intention to join in a war of extermination, but you must be aware that the numerous body of Indians who have attached themselves to my troops will be beyond control the moment the contest commences. The backhanded threat of massacre was too much. The American commander, General William Hull, unaware of his two-to-one advantage, surrendered. The lesson? A superior strategy can and does trump a superior force. In the craft of persuasion, which is also about objectives and campaigns and tactics, strategy is the blueprint brands use to achieve their goals. Come with me inside the war rooms of my business, and I'll show you how strategy is the key to billions of dollars worth of victories and the cause of devastating defeats in the age of persuasion. I want chicken, I want liver. I want a bottle of Coca-Cola, need. That's us! Spicy meatballs! Hey, great. A toothpaste should bite tapping. I can't believe I ate that whole... Battery-powered Big Ruger by Mark. And now, Terry O'Reilly. 
and the Age of Persuasion. There you go again. The word strategy dates back to ancient Greece and means, literally, generalship. You'll hear the word a lot here at the casino. Usually from people who don't have one. For our purposes, a marketing strategy has everything to do with the modern success and acceptance of casinos. For better or worse, the modern popularity of games of chance began with a strategy hinged on a single word. Gaming. Dr. Frank Luntz tells the story in his wonderful book, Words That Work. It's not what you say, it's what people hear. Dr. Luntz tells the story of Frank Ferenkopf, who left his gig as the chair of the U.S. Republican National Committee to run the American Gaming Association. Years earlier, the industry began substituting the word gaming in place of gambling. Ferenkopf intensified the campaign, and in doing so, rebranded an entire industry. The key to his strategy is not the words themselves, but the baggage they carry. Gambling, writes Dr. Luntz, looks like what an old man with a crumpled racing form does at the track, or sounds like the pleas of a desperate degenerate trying to talk a pawn shop punter into paying a little more for his wedding ring or feels like the services provided by some seedy back-alley bookie in some smoke-filled room. Gaming is what families do together at the Hollywood-themed MGM Grand, New York, New York, or one of the other family-friendly resorts in Las Vegas. Gambling is a vice. Gaming is a choice. Gambling is taking a chance engaging in risky behavior. Gaming is as simple as playing a game with cards or dice or a little ball that goes round and round and round. Frank Ferenkopf's spectacular, if somewhat cynical, rebranding strategy boiled down to changing one word, or more precisely, two letters. Casinos and gaming places didn't change a bit, but the public's idea of them changed forever. Today, the gaming industry enjoys unprecedented success. That's the power of strategy. Don't worry, I'm just betting 50 cents. Excuse me, sir. That's $50 you just bet. Oh. <laughs> oh. I've mentioned before that a promise is at the heart of every brand. Among the best brands, the promise is unique. And once the word unique comes into play, that's where the story of strategy takes flight. In 1940, the New York ad firm Ted Bateson Company took a flyer on a 30-year-old copywriter, Rosser Reeves. For my money, it's Reeves, as much as anyone, who would weld advertising and strategy together using a simple, now shop-worn acronym, USP or unique selling proposition. If a brand is lucky enough to have a USP, it can carve out a tidy share of the market, as Rosser Reeves would soon prove. Not long before Reeves was issued his Ted Bates business cards, one Forrest Mars Sr. visited Spain during its Civil War, where he noticed soldiers wandering about eating chocolate candy pellets encased in a hard sugar coating. 
In the warm Spanish climate, he noted that the candy shell prevented the chocolate from melting into a gooey mess in the soldier's hands. According to the folks at Mars, this was the inspiration for M&Ms, a candy whose natural unique selling proposition was embraced and leveraged by the creative team at Ted Bates. These cards are marked. They're a mess! Yeah, a chocolate mess. Easy, boys. The dirty dealer meant no harm. No chocolate mess with M&M's chocolate candies. Candy shell outside, milk chocolate inside. The milk chocolate melts in your mouth, not in your hand. M&M's melts in your mouth, not in your hands. Earth-shattering? No. Unique among candies? Oh, yes. And in one of the world's most competitive product categories, unique is one powerful word. Wonder asks, how big do you want to be? Bigger than George, he's my dog. She'll never need Wonder Bread more than right now. Because the time to grow bigger and stronger is during the Wonder Years, ages 1 through 12. According to Rosser Reeves, a unique selling proposition is built on three components. First, it must make a proposition to a customer. It must say, buy this product and you will get the specific benefit. Second, the proposition must be unique something that the competition either cannot or does not offer. Third, the proposition must be strong enough to move the masses and pull over new customers to a given brand. Wonder helps build strong bodies 12 ways. Even in those early days of the age of persuasion, brilliant strategies emerged. How do we know they're brilliant? Because some of them are still in use more than a century later. In 1881, Harley Proctor, a son of Proctor & Gamble co-founder William Proctor, sought a new angle for selling ivory soap. Then, as now, people were impressed with scientific testimonials, so Harley resolved to prove, through lab testing, that ivory was purer than other soaps. Appropriately enough, the ivory name had been inspired by Psalm 45, which read, all thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of ivory palaces. There was no clinical standard for soap purity in the 1880s, which was just as well. Harley Proctor hired a consultant to concoct one. It was thus deemed that pure soap contained only fatty acids and alkali. By those criteria, ivory did indeed compare well to other soaps showing its impurities accounted for just 56 one-hundredths of 1% 1 of its content. The numbers gave Ivory the technical-sounding authenticity it wanted. And so was born Ivory's famous claim that it's 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent pure. Give me honest work at honest pay Honest sweat from a hard-earned day And when I'm through, that's when I'll say I want my clean as real as Ivory Gotta be 99.44 I want my clean as real as ivory Nothing less, nothing more Wannabe ivory users with dishonest sweat need not apply. Harley Proctor's strategy led to both a unique selling proposition and a marketing position, though neither term in my trade had been invented yet. Nor had they when Minneapolis ad guy Raymond Methune was summoned to a fateful meeting with the folks at the Minnesota Valley Canning Company. 
Methune was co-founder of an agency called Campbell Methune. The folks at MVCC informed him that, while they were loyal to their agency Leo Burnett, they weren't thrilled with their advertising. Methune was offered either the peas business or the corn. To Methune, the strategy was all wrong. What they needed, he said, was to create an umbrella brand to include both peas and corn, which, in those days, was called Del Mays Niblets. Methune requested, and was granted, a week to think it over. When he returned, he presented a full-page ad. He filled the page with a tall green giant, with a case of peas on one shoulder and a case of corn on the other. Much as they loved the idea, the MVCC folks were loyal to Burnett, whose business they had helped bankroll. With Methune's blessing, Burnett was shown the idea which it adopted, and an advertising icon was born. Though the Green Giant's original TV incarnation bore little resemblance to his later self. The Mickey Rooney Show, brought to you by the Jolly Green Giant, your best friend in peas and corn. How did we ever live without a best friend in peas and corn? Raymond Methune gave away his winning strategy to Leo Burnett free, and Burnett would reap the benefit. Almost overnight, Rosser Reeves' USP method swept Madison Avenue. It enabled brands, which might, on their merits, be indistinguishable to consumers, to compete for a unique place in the public's imagination. A competition which became infinitely more interesting with the rise of two advertising gurus and a single word in the 1970s. My name is Terry O'Reilly, and this is the Age of Persuasion. It was more than a generation ago that two then-unknown ad executives, Al Reese and Jack Trout, found a new word to articulate marketing strategy, positioning. And true to the military metaphors of marketing, their book was given the subtitle, The Battle for Your Mind. Marketers know that in your mind, the difference between brands of detergents car rental companies, soft drinks, or personal itch creams aren't often important. So, all things being relatively equal, they battle for a favored position in your noggin. Put simply, recent trout suggest that you sort brands in ladders in your head. For a high-interest product, you may remember seven brands. For a low-interest product, as few as three. And you prioritize them. The task of each brand is to find a place on that ladder and to displace any brands on the higher rungs. For instance, imagine the number one soft drink brand. Now imagine its nearest rival. Two interesting points arise. First, I'll bet you a nickel that you have them prioritized, one over the other in your mind. Second, not everyone is imagining the same two brands that you are. How a brand finds its place on that ladder and how it positions itself against the competition is the going concern in my business. 
Among the many typical positions a product might adopt as part of its strategy is the against position. In the 60s, Avis proudly took the number two position and said so, adding, we try harder. The unwritten part of that line, filled in by consumers, was, then hurts. Hence, the against position. The strategy? Win a place in people's imaginations as the lovable underdog. And, true to the recent Trout philosophy, whenever possible, be first in a position. Avis were the first to occupy the penultimate position. Decades back, 7-Up took a bold, strategic step in the soft drink category by calling itself the Uncola. And they found a solid rung on many a cranial ladder with a memorable campaign featuring actor, director, choreographer, Jeffrey Holder. Do you know that 7-Up has no caffeine? Of course you do. Do you care? Of course you do. 7-Up, crisp and clean and no caffeine. Never had it? Never will. Mm. Now don't you feel good about 7-Up? Of course you do. <laughs> don't you feel good about 7-Up? <laughs> but here's the thing. The strategy of the against position comes with a caveat. A brand that's against can't just say what it isn't. It must also say what it is. Kind of a slag and sell. Listen for both in this spot from a campaign we love to analyze, Mac versus PC. So, PC, these issues are not your fault. Not my fault. Of course not, pal. Unlike Mac, whose operating system and hardware are all made by the same people, your stuff comes from a bunch of different places. You can't be blamed for that. How could you? <sighs> Under those circumstances, who could expect everything to work together the way they should? Oh, no. so it's not my fault. Exactly. It's not my fault. Okay, go with that. It's not my fault. It's Mac's fault. Okay. <sighs> it's Mac's fault. What a breakthrough. There's a balance that would put the great Farini to shame. On one side, Mac is oh-so-kindly observing that PC offers a melange of software that might lead to problems. Mac, meanwhile, boasts that his unified software prevents those problems. All that, and we get a lovely Matt Damon moment. At once, this is one of the kindest, nastiest campaigns on the air. Its strategy positions Mac as the number two computer system, yet also the favorite. When is a subway not a subway? When it's the Paris Metro, especially after a remarkable strategic rebranding in the 1990s. It was clear that the Metro needed an image makeover. So rather than reinvent its wheels, marketers needed to change the idea of the Metro in people's minds. To do that, their first step was to change the way they viewed their users. Users became customers. In time, the Paris Metro was home to internet terminals, ATM machines, 300 shops, 1,500 vending machines, and 100 newspaper distributors, for which the corporate partners pay royalties. Works of art are on display at many stations. In new theatrical spaces, performers give concerts. A customer website provides traffic information, customized itineraries, and a guide to goings-on in the City of Lights. The strategy? 
Paris changed what its metro is, deciding they were not in transportation, but rather a provider of services for mobile people. With that, ridership and customer satisfaction took off. There are people, and lots of them, who criticize marketers for strategies that employ emotion instead of reason to pitch their brand. These people are called consumers. Step inside the marketing world, even for a day, and you quickly realize the danger of fact-based, left-brained, lay-out-the-case advertising. There's rarely anything you can't do that your competition can't do just as well. Maybe you're better today, but tomorrow they might be better tasting, longer lasting, or more reliable. And that's a problem. Not many consumers buy their second favorite brand. The best foothold with consumers is authentic, but also emotional. And a key reason is that emotion is the most lasting way to find a meaningful place in the consumer's mind. In the 60s, when four-wheeled land yachts were a status symbol, Volkswagen broke through with a charming, accessible, thumb-the-nose-at-the-big-guy's anti-Detroit strategy. Campbell's soup-that-eats-like-a-meal strategy helped it stand out from the others by boasting it was full of meat and vegetables and not just broth. FedEx's, when it absolutely positively has to be there overnight, was a huge promise. But what business, with the stress and pressure most are under, could not be seduced by that strategy? If a brand doesn't create its own position, wrote Reese and Trout, the consumer will do it for them. The Wall Street Journal was once perceived as a paper only the boss would read, and then only when sales were bad. Then, Fallon North America repositioned the journal as a tool for achieving your financial dreams with the wonderful line, The Wall Street Journal, The Daily Diary of the American Dream. The strategy for Penn Tennis Balls was to sell consistency. They followed up the strategy with superb creative. Wrapped neatly in the line, you've seen one, you've seen them all. Not long ago, ad giant Maurice Saatchi wrote a fascinating article on brand strategies for the new century. He believes that the digital age is leaving the brains of young people rewired. The brain, he believes, responds faster, sifts out, and recalls less. That's what makes it possible, he says, for a modern teenager, in the 30 seconds of a normal television commercial, to take a phone call, send a text, receive a photograph, play a game, download a music track, read a magazine, and watch commercials at six times speed. A condition called partial attention. With tongue only partially in cheek, he cites a solution in the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word, saith Sachi, is the brand's guide, protector, defender, and savior. One word, not several words. Two words is not God. It is two gods, and two gods are one too many. So take great care, he says, before you assign your brand a word. The test? 
Sachi says in each category of business, it will only be possible for one brand to own a particular word. You must use it to describe precisely the particular value, the characteristic, the emotion that you are trying to make your own. The word search belongs to Google. Volvo is safety. Apple is innovation. So many brands fail at this. Others thrive with words such as fresh. Welcome to Burger Bonanza. Can I take your order? Yeah, I'd like an extra large pot belly. You want just the pot belly or the combo? I'll go with the combo. And what would you like for your side? Um, do you have love handles? Yep, two to an order. Yeah, I'll go with those. Oh, and a double chin as well. I love those things. Honey, what do you want? Can I get a badonkadonk butt? You want the badonkadonk butt or the badonkadonk butt? Um, just the badonkadonk. Okay, you can get extra flabby for only 49 cents more. Um, sure. And what kind of thighs do you have? We have thunder thighs and cottage cheese thighs. How about the thunder thighs? Sure. So that's one extra large pot belly combo with a side of love handles, a double chin, and an extra flabby badonkadonk butt with thunder thighs on the side. What are you really getting with your combo meal? Try Subway Restaurant's new California Fit Meal. Select six-inch subs with apple slices or raisins and low-fat milk. A fresh alternative to burgers and fries. Subway. Eat fresh. Rosser Reeves warned that, for marketers, there is only so much room in the consumer's brain. When a new brand takes its place, another is pushed out the ear and is forgotten. To thrive, that new brand must be clearly positioned against the others and its strategy that gets them there. After General Hull surrendered Fort Detroit, he was court-martialed and sentenced to death, a sentence commuted only because of a great past record in battle. The generals in my business aren't always as forgiving. In marketing, as in war, the love of strategy may be a symptom of an old theory called the male warrior effect. The theory that men, of whatever gender, need threats, rivalry, and war for them to work well and most effectively together. Battling the enemy is a powerful incentive. Reese and Trout noted the leading brands in 25 categories in 1923. Seven decades later, only three of those brands lost their leadership position. To understand marketing strategy is to better understand those thousands of sales messages lobbed your way every day. And it's also a way to better understand your relationship to what's important and what is not in the age of persuasion. In a word, The Age of Persuasion is created and written by Terry O'Reilly. Hmm. Is anal retentive one word? And Mike Tennant. <laughs> Tool. Engineer Keith Oman. One word, huh? Okay, uh... Punctual. Title theme by Ari Posner and Ian Lefevre. In a word? Juvenile? No. Incorrigible? No. Delinquents? No. Oh, what? Musicians! The Age of Persuasion is produced for CBC Radio by Pirate Toronto.